0: to the wealth bar blog thank you i'm jonathan Narvey, and today i have with me nicholas badminton now you're a futurist who gives talks around the world yeah to some of the biggest companies in the world you yeah. also you host a, you host events yep you write you think generally about the biggest questions of what might happen in the future for sure um You've got a technical and business background, yep. um, so just to set the table for the discussion to follow uh, for the audience, answer this question for me. What is a futurist and how did you become one? Right,
1: yeah, so it, it, it's really interesting question. And I pretty much get asked this question as much as any of the other sort of basic questions around what futurology is and, and whatever. So, <clears throat> what's a futurist? Uh, a futurist actually studies the future, the future state of the world based on current uh, and past predictions. Um, futurology is the study of the future. I actually spend the majority of my 20 plus year career as a strategist i'm actually a certified technical architect i used to build some of the largest data uh, and predictive uh, algorithm systems in the world i actually studied artificial intelligence and neural natural language processing at university from 93 to 96. i actually say that i've got 35 years of experience because at the age of 10 i sat down at a bbc microcomputer and started hacking around with that I read the Osborne book of the future back then. I've been in this for a long, long time. But really, what it was was taking my application of strategic planning for, for technology projects uh, within like management consultancy backgrounds and whatever, and applying that in a much larger, broader context, looking to 5, 10, 15, 20 years into the future. And it sort of got exacerbated by the fact that I started doing events. So I did Cyborg Camp. Uh, And that was a few years ago and then From Now and then I did a number of different events. Dark Futures is the one that's had six events in both Vancouver and Toronto. And it's become sort of the big well-known one across North America. It's kind of crazy. Um, How did I become one? I just worked really hard. I had a passion for the future. And really, it was, my background's always been in experimental technology. So I found myself surrounded by people that were curious. I just got them together um, in one place and someone started calling me a futurist about five years ago. Uh, I would never have even thought about calling myself a futurist. It's just, but someone said, no, no, you are. That's who you are. And I was like, okay. And about three years ago, I I decided to really own that. I changed all of my job titles and everything. I quit the job that I was working at at that time, which was for a really great company called freelancer.com, and decided to go full in
0: on this. The futurist, it's almost like a a superhero moniker, and yet it is what you are. There's a, uh, you're someone who thinks so much about the future in a sense, and in a sense we're all sort of living little bit in the future yeah it's like a practical
1: occupation within an organization you build out a foresight and strategic advisory capability a futurist is someone that operates within that in the Canadian government there's actually a group called policy horizons and they've got a chief futurist called Peter Padbury and he's got he's got groups of, of futurists working in the government, working out f- future scenarios for policy for, for for federal government to consider. So it, it, it's, a, it's a proper job. It's just there's not many people. Over the years, I've had lots of people going, come on, really? And then they sort of hear what I do, and they come and see me speak, and they're like, oh, I, I get it a lot more. Because it's very practical, it's like, I sit down with executives and, and board of directors and say, here's your current state, this is where we're going. I, I've, got, I've had over 150 customers in the last three years alone. Hmm. And spoken to over a hundred thousand people, you know, it, it, well, it's like it, it's like the impact is is exponential, really.
0: Yeah, it, it is a very practical, uh, very human occupation. I, I mean, in some sense, it goes back to hunting on the savannah, you know, following the patterns of the herd and predicting from there. We've always we've always been futurists. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's, since this is the Wolf Bar blog, sure, <laughs> let's let's uh, get into talking broadly about the future of money. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you specifically what that might look like. For instance, um, you know, there's the hype around uh, cryptocurrency yeah. and Bitcoin, which by the way Wealth Bar does nothing, has nothing to do <laughs> sure. with, uh, but you know, Canadians still don't quite get what that's all about. Yeah. And then. You know, maybe there are some other trends that you're seeing that that interest you.
1: Yeah, uh, funnily enough, I was in Las Vegas four weeks ago and I was speaking to the the National Pawnbroker Association of the States and they asked me to go down and talk about the future of cash. So it it helped me really dive down into the future of money and I can send you a link to the presentation and people listening can, can go and take a look at that. And and what it, what it was really interesting looking at cash, it's like okay, Sweden is very much going towards a digitised economy with no cash. In fact, it's very difficult to spend money in places like Sweden and Finland and and Denmark. Um, Iceland's gone the other way because um, they really got hit hard in two thousand and eight, and they don't trust any of their bankers anymore. So the, the use of cash has rocketed up. Uh, It's interesting, down in the States, uh, young people, millennials, use cash more than ever before. Probably for 80% of their transactions, which is hugely wild to me. And up in Canada, I don't know, we're still a bit of a mix of of, uh, electronic cash, credit cards, whatever, uh, and and cash itself. For example, I'm moving tomorrow and I'm paying cash so I can avoid a 3% charge, credit card processing charge, right? So, there are still worlds like that. Flip over to the world of crypto. Now, I'm not bullish on crypto, yes I've got cryptocurrency, you know, I I do have cryptocurrency, I didn't get in the game super early, I've had friends that have been mining uh, Bitcoin since 2012, Uh, normally they're worth a lot of money, but the people that truly believe in that as a new form of of payment and currency and uh, the blockchain that goes underneath... They don't see themselves as, as multi-millionaires, you know. There's a lot of Chinese pump and dump schemes, and and it has actually come mostly from China. You know, that's been uh, sort of boosted up by North American uh, hyperbole and, and fanboy fervour. You know, people people love that. The, the The purists are into blockchain and the technology under that. I still think it's got a long way to go. Um, there's some great companies like Coinsquare, I've got a lot of friends that work for them here in, uh, in Canada, that are really trying to promote a responsible way of investing or owning cryptocurrencies. Now, I've spoken to the SEC, the Ontario Securities Commission, a whole bunch of people, and people just don't know anything about it. You speak to some of the large banks, they can't get a grip on it. It's because it's, 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 it's out in the Wild West of, of currency. You can't walk out of this building that we're sat in right now and spend Bitcoin anywhere like you could do three to four years ago. It, it's very hard because it's not that kind. It's not liquid currency in the same way. On the flip side, I've got a very good friend who, who ran a, a, a very uh, large company. He exited for over a billion dollars, a guy called Reuven Cohen. Reuven, great guy. I, I love him. Go and check him out. Um, he runs a company called CoinLaunch that helps people launch ICOs. <clears throat> and now he, he basically invested a sum of money, about $20,000, and exited for about $4.6 million, right? Through some brokers in Chicago. they f- fairly like, you know, people that can move money, like, you know, good people, and bought a hotel in Florida. Hmm. That's the most legit cryptocurrency story I've heard. But the rest of the people are, are very bullish on it and whatever, but we're not in a world where everyone's got speedboats You know huge houses suddenly it's the new world order in terms of cash i think cryptocurrency is going to have a place in the world it's not going to be in the craziness of where we are today and uh and what's really interesting is is the the financial institutions have been bolted into sort of action because this is a new way of thinking about money but i do think that there's bigger things that are coming that are going to cause more concern did
0: you want to talk a little bit about that then?
1: Yeah, so we live in a world where we've got companies that have got millions, tens, hundreds of millions of users, you know, people like Facebook, Google, Amazon, whoever. Imagine if we had a marketplace that decided to launch its own version of its of a currency and it actually said that, you know, organizations could actually convert their cash into currency for that platform and pay their people, and whatever. It becomes its own ecosystems holistically. You can buy your groceries there. I'm, I'm just using Amazon as an example. You can buy your groceries there, you can buy things that you need online. Eventually you might even be able to pay your rent through that and whatever. And it might be called the Amazon dollar. Purely speculative. And it starts to take on the US dollar as a legitimate form of currency. There was an economist called uh, um, Gresham and he, he came up with something called Gresham's law. That a bad currency, once it actually is adopted at a, a certain level, will push out a good currency. So a big tech dollar or Amazon dollar would push out the US dollar. That's what's going to be really interesting in the next five to ten years is that you're going to see these these companies that are starting to have a position in the world of power in terms of subscription and consumer base that they're actually going to start to usurp the actual monetary system in countries.
0: You know that's funny, I I recall a few years ago David Bowie uh, put out his Bowie Bucks. That is, that's uh, right, Bowie Bonds. Oh, Bowie Bonds, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I would actually even call it,
1: I gave that as an example to the Ontario Securities Commission at Christmas. It was an event, it was an educational event for 800 of their employees. And I talked about the Bowie Bonds. Now, David Bowie was really smart. He, he basically licensed all of his albums to that day um, and, and sold these bonds for about 540 million pounds. Right, it's about eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars 900000 and within three to five years, the entire music industry licensing had gone, gone to hell because of digital downloads. So David Bowie did the first ICO in a way. He got all the money at the beginning, and then he got out, and then everyone was just left in literally their junk bonds today. So
0: not just a gifted musician, but yep. a very astute businessman. It's one of my
1: favorite stories, and I, yeah, thanks for bringing that one up. But yeah, and I, mm. I,
0: I, spoke to the Ontario Securities
1: Commission, and they were like, "Oh my god, we didn't realize." It's like mm. there's lots of different ways of operating, and um, yeah, the rules and regulations try and keep people, you know, under guard and in in the corner. Mm. Cryptocurrencies do whatever they want, mm. uh, and that's what that, that's where there's this freedom that, that's scary for a lot of people. You know, gov- government-sanctioned like ICOs and things like that. So many ICOs have failed. It's the new sort of crowdsourcing scheme. You know, so many Kickstarter's have failed, right? It's 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 one of those things. Um, but there, there's some there's some magic associated with the idea of of blockchain and cryptocurrency. And and really, it's not magic. It's it's a practical use of technology to distribute a ledger of of what you own across people and reward you for processing transactions. And now it's just gone crazy.
0: It's still very much bleeding edge for the uh, mainstream Canadian uh, who yeah. wants, uh, you know, who again can't uh, spend it down at the local 7-Eleven yeah. um, or buy a house with it, generally. Yeah. Um, at the same time, um, you know, at the same time as we've got maybe our, our focus or attention sometimes on, on you know, these uh, viral stories about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I suspect, you, you know, the average Canadian is, um, they're more focused on the day-to-day, the, what to do with the money that they do have, um, and how to invest it in, in maybe a more traditional sense. Yeah. And yet even that uh, relationship uh, with money is changing. Uh, of course, we're we're an investment firm, sure. a robo advisor, uh, so that's a model that's already uh, exploded, and it's I see it as almost mainstream in in the United States. It sure but is, yeah. It, it's still a bit of an unknown here in Canada, or maybe not an unknown, but lesser known compared to say the the five big banks. Yeah. Um, the whole mission of our company is to use technology to democratize investing for everyone, not just the 1%, which I think is a pretty future-focused mission. Yeah. Um, but do you have any thoughts on the robo-advisor model in general, yeah. or maybe even how we're doing it in particular?
1: Yeah, I, I don't really have a comment specifically on how you guys do it. Here. I, 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 had, I do talk at conferences about the robo-advisor model. And really, it, it, it's really about accessibility to a population that, that wants to spend a little bit less money investing, that want to do it automatically, that don't want the stress and hassle, and really don't want to sit down and talk to people about it, right? They, you know, your, your parents' investment advisor is not a good investment advisor for, for you, necessarily, if you're a 19-year-old. I, I just don't think it is. I don't think they get who you are. They don't get your thoughts and your passions. I don't think they they get the idea that, that the mobile platforms are the way that you want to do business. It's like come in, read this paper. I'm going to send you away with like you know a box of paper to read and. And like, I'll send you a letter twice a year. It's not how the world works for, for the younger people, right? So, so robo advisors actually provide a lot of uh, a lot of benefits for those people that want an easy way into the game of advising. I uh, sorry, an easy way into the game of saving and investing. So um, I think that's where the tipping point is. It's with the younger population, and you know I, I think that there's a certain amount of uh, low-risk cash that people want to sort of uh, have very little administration time with. I was just with an investment, my, one of my investment advisors this morning, and it's like, why am I sat here? And it's like, okay, we're doing things that are a bit more risky. I get it. There's a lot more advice. My one of my other advisors, like I don't talk to hardly any, at all anymore, and I, I get really average return from it and it's like I might as well just move all of that into the robo-advisor space. Not saying that returns are terrible or anything like that, it's just a different kind of model and it's a little bit of a, more of a safer investment. Um, but it, it's kind of establishment versus the new world. The younger people are going to drive themselves to robo-advisors. I think I saw a stat the other day that globally 10, 10% of the world's finances uh, that are invested uh, it's actually under robo-advisors now. It's really big out in Asia, um, and what you're going to see is you're going to see banks getting in this game, the big banks, um, and it's going to be complementary to the human advisors. I think you'll see um, things like Wealth Bar and whatever alongside a human in terms of like talking to to the younger audience as well.
0: Yeah, certainly that's uh, you know something that we've tried to do here, and I think that sort of differentiates our model it's a bit more of a hybrid model yeah um in that you know we're we're not ai powered we right. are technology powered yeah and so it's you know going to what you were talking about before it's it's uh, you know making it more convenient you know paperless taking the procedure out of it or at yeah. least we handle the procedure in the back end yeah Um. and then if they need an advisor there's an advisor there. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, and they slack or phone. Or, so it's sort of bringing a uh, traditional wealth management into uh, sort of a digital age. Um, are are there um, uh, going to a, a a higher level again? Yeah. Um, how do you see changes in these kinds of changes in technology in how uh, maybe change? The, their effect on changing Canadians' behavior yeah. in terms of buying, saving, and investing. Yeah. Or to put it another way, how are these technology changes with to do with money going to change their lives in yeah. a very practical sense?
1: So if if you look at the history of money, is it, it's, it's it's not very evolved, but we're we're at sort of a, a tipping point, right? You know, I, I've got I've got fifty bucks in my wallet, and. You know, a hundred years ago I've got 50 bucks in my wallet, although albeit it's got a very different monetary value here, it's like still pretty basic stuff, but the technology that's coming, um, the way that the world works in terms of platforms, in terms of how people transact, in terms of bartering, in terms of different ways of operating. Um, will fundamentally change how people do the three things that you were saying, like the buying, saving, and investing, right? Um, You're probably gonna have people partially buying goods or partially buying sort of homes or whatever. Saving's gonna be, you know, split across sort of actual advisory versus like robo-advisory versus some people not choosing to save at all because they don't feel that they're ever gonna retire. Uh, You know, and investing is another thing. I think artificial intelligence is gonna kick in there, um, but that's a much larger discussion. Here's something really interesting. Um, some people are saying that we're in the fourth industrial age. Right? What does that mean? So, so in, in the first industrial age we know was very much around like steam power, the printing press and whatever. So transportation, energy and communication are the three dimensions of, of industrial ages. So transportation is being completely upended right now. We've got things like I drive an electric vehicle. Um, we'll have self-driving vehicles on the roads within a couple of years, and very predominantly um, in Canada and North America, certainly by by, by 2023, 2024. Um, we've got um, you know self-driving public transport. Um, the ownership of a vehicle will be not not normal um, in about five to six years. Um, then we've got in energy we've got renewable energy, solar power. Um, oil I think is over even though we power so much of the world with it um, between like biodiesels and biomass and moving into you know solar and wind and, and, and wave and hydro. I think we, we're moving towards a, a place that's a lot more progressive. Unfortunately, Trudeau and his friends are not that progressive, and they're still investing in pipelines, which is really stupid. And uh, and then uh, communication is virtually free. Hmm. Like, there's no way you contacted me about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't have to pay for that communication. It was an email, right? You know, there's a couple of text messages and whatever. You sent me some questions. It it that's virtually free. This fourth industrial revolution, and, and someone called Jeremy Rifkin talks about this as well, is, is going to push us into this future where we are a little bit more decentralized and maybe blockchain will be part of that. We are a little bit more distributed and we can use exponential technologies to change how we operate. Now, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting law that I want to talk about right now. Um, someone called Amara, there's Amara's law. In the short term, we, under, we overestimate the impact of technology. So that's the fervor about AI and electric vehicles, you know, and all that stuff. I always say the future is slow, right? It's slowly coming. If it is coming, trust me, the early adopters will will ease us into the future. And then it will suddenly be here. And in the long term, uh, Amara said that we underestimate the impact of technology. So, you know, we can't underestimate solar, for example, which is going to revolutionize the world. We can't underestimate self-driving vehicles and artificial intelligence. We can't underestimate robo-advisory in terms of the value that it gives to investors as well. And and what's interesting in Canada, by 2063, they think that there's going to be over 65 million Canadians. Mm-hmm. Right, That's almost double where we are today. Um, and there's gonna be something that comes with that which is a, a new innovation, techn- technology-led economy, right? And more people living in cities. We think that Vancouver's getting bigger now, that's nothing, it's, it's gonna start really, really densifying and, and spreading out as wings. Um, Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton even the small cities like Kelowna and whatever they are going to start to become powerhouses for for industry and business a lot more than they already are right so so we're in a strange world where these you know Canadians are going to be impacted from all sides we've just seen apple hit a trillion dollar valuation so I say that two trillion is the new trillion. It's like we're, we're, we're jumping ahead leaps and bounds of what people in the world find as valuable. I think um, what, what I found was I added up the, the market caps of Microsoft and Amazon and Apple and Facebook and Alphabet. And um, jointly, I think it was something like, it was something like $5.2 trillion together mm. Um, which makes them the fifth-largest country in the world by GDP with only about 900,000 employees. And I think if my math serves me right, each employee would make for the company about $14 million. Mm. That for me is what I call a signal, a a signal of change. When I see those things things happening, I see entire economies are going to completely change how they operate. There's a, there's a big service industry, there's a big uh, um, travel tourism industry, there is business in Canada, there's energy in Canada. Well, we could be powerhouses in renewable energy. I think te- from technology innovation, we're one of the most innov- innovative countries in the world in terms of size versus innovations. Um, in terms of other ways of working, we're gonna see Canadians just change. Kids that graduate today, um, will have a completely different experience to their parents and their parents are adjusting over time as well.
0: So to drill down just a little bit yeah. uh, to these, you know, major changes happening mm. in, in the economy and how we run our cities and society, um, you know, how is this going to affect uh, again behavior? like how. What things might we say consider odd or unusual today that are going to be quite commonplace in terms of uh, say uh, you know getting loans, uh, investing, saving, uh, buying patterns uh, and uh, I suspect this is also going to be very region specific as well. Yeah I mean in terms of investing whatever I mean there's the moving
1: landscape around what's high risk versus a lower risk investment. As we see these technologies come in, they're going to become lower risk over time as adoption kicks in, we hope. Um, in terms of ways of investing, I do think that something like Wealth Bar and other advisors will be starting to adopt um, artificial intelligence to help them you know, manage portfolios more, uh, more regularly than, than happens today. I think that Canadians will start to have more trust in this technology. I actually think the world is around hybrid advisory, which is technology, artificial intelligence, and human as well. Um, I think that's gonna that that's gonna sort of change. Um, in terms of how you invest and what you choose to invest, I still think that's gonna be at your discretion. I still think that you're gonna have volatility in markets. I'd like to think that in 150 years time, no more markets, no more volatility, pure wealth distribution, utopia, right? Maybe, you know, maybe like the Venus project comes to be. But, you know, we're not in that world and it's going to take us a long time to even get close to a utopian ideal where that wealth distribution is. I do think that what's going to happen is I, I, I think over time you're going to have the wealthy that, that start to trickle down a lot of their a lot of their money they think it's about in North America about 30 trillion dollars in the next 30 years it's a lot that's it? a lot of is money 30 trillion is a huge amount of money or is it or something like $10 dollars in 30 years it's Which trillions still it's trillions of dollars and, it, and it's yeah. flowing down to um to the boomers to the to the gen x's like me uh and and down to millennials as well so we, what we're going to be seeing is we, we're not going to be seeing tons of people building their wealth we're going to be seeing tons of people inheriting their wealth and uh there's going to be an importance around investing going forward because the gen z that's coming up afterwards are going to be left with nothing unless some people take responsible uh control of their money. I'm glad you
0: brought up that point, actually. Uh, You know, one of the things about this trend of, you know, inheriting wealth, which I think some people sort of count on, even if if they they look at where their family is at today and their holdings and debt, they may be vastly overestimating what might happen, particularly if their parents or grandparents live yeah. to 120 or yeah. whatever it is that, you know, medical science yeah. extends our lives out to. Um, you know, there's going to be, uh, I, I gather, you know, quite a bit of, of wealth uh, uh, coming through the generations, but also people... There seems to be a trend also of higher debt, which you know flows from yeah. high, higher cost of living, higher cost of housing, yeah. um, which you know your investments and saving can only offset so much. Um, are we facing you know uh, sort of you know average uh, Canadian home with you know some mortgage debt? Uh, and and you know uh, a, a modest, not to particularly uh, extravagant lifestyle. Might they be? F- might this sort of uh, family unit be facing a challenge financially? If you know, are we seeing trends where that could be a problem if they're yeah. not saving enough?
1: Yeah. You know what? It, it's very difficult to know. We're we're mm-hmm. we're we're being held in very strange situations in Canada. Um. So uh, cities like Vancouver and Toronto have become hedge cities. So that means that people from other countries like China um, have basically pumped their money into real estate here and it's pumped up the real estate market so we can't afford to be there. I think what we're going to find is we, we, um, cities in Canada are going to become places that you live and you rent and you don't own and that's how you live your life and and a lot of people balk at the idea and uh, someone was chatting to me yesterday it's like canadians expect to own a home for their family and whatever it's not like that in germany it's not like that in in france necessarily in in the cities you know people in london don't necessarily own their properties per se right it is it's going to change so we're going to live in a future where rental is not going to be a bad word ownership is going to be something that's not uh, demanded uh, as instantaneously as it is today. So I, th- I do think that there's going to be a shift there, um, but only in the cities. I think when you get to small, like the large cities, I think when you get to smaller cities, I think you're going to have people that still want to own, they want to have their, you know, some blue, some white collar work, they want to have a good family life, and, you know, they generally want to just just relax, And whereas pi- uh, cities are going to become pressure cookers.
0: So now and into the future, it's yeah. going to continue the the old conflict or or, or question of life balance or yeah. work life balance. What do you want out of life, and that's how you will spend your money, and that's how you'll you'll focus your energies. I don't I don't even know what life balance is
1: in twenty eighteen.
0: I honestly don't know. Um, I
1: again I just had a conversation. They're like, what about retirement? It's like I'm never going to retire. And she, she she looked at me strangely. I'm like, I'm 45. Say I live another 40 years, right? 84 is about the average uh, life expectancy. I'm never going to stop working. So why am I really worried about retirement? I don't think I don't think kids are, are really worried. I mean, I've I've had I've had five times in my career, and that's 22 years now at this point, where I've quit and just done sabbaticals and did whatever I wanted and and or started new jobs or, or whatever and and that kind of approach to working and doing your own thing and you know youtubers and influencers and people creating their own economic systems of, of, of getting paid for doing what they love this is going to be the future for for the kids that are out there and we're not going to quite understand it and, and and people don't have those perceptions of, of like marriage and children and 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 owning a car and owning a house and it's like you know you know birth education marriage death it's like it, that that doesn't really fit into lexicon of of the majority of kids these days and even people like me being a Gen Xer you know I'm single well I'm not single but I'm I'm in a serious relationship. I'm 45. I own my own property. I own my own car. I Just bought a new car. Um, but in 10 years' time, I'm, I honestly don't care about any of it. Mm. I, it's like, and it's like, do I have enough money to survive to do what I need to do today? And can I can I live a good life? And that's all that people care about.
0: Well, I love that you brought up this topic of retirement. Um, because I do think it's something that still keeps a lot of Canadians up at night yeah. and uh, you know a lot of people haven't made the shift and to be honest I, I'm not certain that a lot of uh, or I, I don't know what percentage would be able to make that shift not everyone is necessarily you know of an entrepreneurial bent yeah. Agreed. Uh, um, you know or you know able to adopt new technologies to adapt new skills Uh, so it's sort of people are are caught a little bit um, it seems to me Um, we're sort of stuck in a paradigm but it's a paradigm that was relatively recent yeah I I was looking up that um, you know back when the uh, old age security uh, pension systems for from the government were set up in the US and Canada uh, the age of 65 was selected um, essentially, because people were dying at age sixty-six, mm. um, and now we're living to you know easily into our eighties. Yeah, and so of course you could you know save up over a lifetime yeah. for a few years of retirement or five, ten years. If you're looking at thirty-five years, uh, or even twenty-five, yeah. that's that's a lot. So uh, you, we absolutely have to look at new ways of not just saving and investing, but working. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, boomers are the last generation that are going to think in the old terms. of the In the old terms of ownership, in the old terms of purely. In the old terms of ownership, in the old, old terms of pension, government pension, um, personal pension. In the old terms of saving, in the old terms of inheritance to their children. I don't think that Gen X is... Millennials and uh, and Gen Z are gonna are gonna think in those terms, because I don't I don't honestly think we owe our kids
0: anything. I'm, I'm a, I, I'm I'd a, love you to expand on that because <laughs> I I think uh, some portion of the audience okay. might might disagree. Yeah, yeah sure. Go ahead. I, I want to hear this.
1: People will totally disagree with me on this. I, I'm super provocative on some of these things, and uh, so bear with me. I'm 45. I I'm just about to move in with. With a girlfriend i used to be married like i I sort of took me a while to just like get through working too much and into a world where i could have a relationship um i don't have children so i don't have that perspective or that emotional like oh my god i'm gonna do the best for my kids but i i truly don't i don't actually i actually come from a world where i don't want any inheritance from any of my parents i don't care i really don't care and therefore um it's because i came from a predominantly working class background and I didn't have anything. So if you don't have anything, you've got nothing to lose. And if, if your kids are growing up and they have nothing, well, then that's the status quo and that's okay. And they can build and work work for what they need. And in fact, it, it, it makes them stronger. If you look at the, the, the majority of entrepreneurs that are out there, they've actually worked and strived to do more so that they're completely independent of any inheritance track from their parents. They don't care. Like money doesn't have that, that kind of emotional visceral thing. So I think the boomers, it's like no, we're gonna set it up for our kids, we're gonna save their education, whatever it's like you know, as and when I have children, and some people say, Well you're not gonna believe that when you have children. When I have children, I will I will certainly look at the situation and sure I'll make sure that they're fed and watered and I'll make sure that they're supported. But I just hope they don't want to have an inheritance because I'm gonna spend all the money whilst I'm alive. And that's what my parents are doing right now. I don't know, my, my family is pretty progressive from that perspective. And we're quite working class and
0: normal people from the UK, right? Hmm. Hmm.
1: It's interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, again, our, our relationship to money, to saving, you know, it's going to change. Values change. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me how yes. these these things are are. Uh, I, yeah, changing.
1: I think I think credit systems, credit cards mm-hmm. specifically, have changed our relationship to value and money. That's why so many people get into credit card debt. That's why so many people don't start saving until later on. Because it doesn't seem like real. It's money. It's not real money. It's like it's like when you play a sugar candy crush and you buy your way through a level. It's not real money because so, you because you convert dollars into candies or whatever it is or or power-ups same like clash of clans and whatever so I I often talk about um, Mm. moving real money into into a nominal currency in a closed ecosystem very much like Gresham's law I was talking about later and you spend it willy-nilly because it's actually not you're not spending dollars Mm. you're spending like ribbons or candies or Amazon bucks
0: well, we're in the middle of that. It feels like that's. Uh, I guess that's the challenge of the future. Uh, is Is sort of a psychological adjustment for uh, Canadians, for all of humanity. Yeah. What does What does money mean, and what you know? What does value mean? Um, any final final thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you
1: know. Um, why does a car cost thirty to $50,000? You know, well, it's the cost of production, the cost of manual labor, all of these things. All of these things are being driven down to zero marginal cost through automation, through um, um, cheaper supply chains and whatever. So things get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time. Again, Jeremy Rifkin talks about zero marginal cost a lot as well. And that zero marginal cost will, will create a world where we've ultimately got abundance. And an ability to live our lives the way that we want to live without breaking the bank doing it. Um, ultimately, we're going to be in a world where we're going to earn less money, we're going to save less money, but we hope that things are going to get cheaper. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, people in Canada have, have not closed down the, uh, the systems to external people outside of Canada investing in our infrastructures and, and buying our properties and whatever, so it's caused a a real cluster mess of, of uh, of, of economic uh, s- sort of fissures in a way that it's it's broken our system.
0: I mean Vancouver, right? Mm. Mm. It is, yeah, I I mean anyone who living in Vancouver. A one point
1: two million dollar yeah. two bedroom eleven hundred square foot
0: apartment is insane. I'm from Winnipeg originally. Right, and it just. <laughs> The real estate situation here just still blows my yeah. mind, even and, though I've been living here for 20 years.
1: And and, and here's the cause, right? The cause is actually, it actually stems from uh, um, the property developers selling abroad rather than selling locally and, and being focused on that and driving up prices, but the big one that's caused a big problem in Vancouver is the baby boomers selling their houses and being greedy.
0: What do you mean by that? By I, I, I
1: I think I think the, the realtors have, have start, started to tell baby boomers that they could literally sell their house that they bought for hundred and fifteen thousand dollars thirty five years ago for like four million dollars in Dunbar and those boomers have said, Okay, why don't we sell it for four point five million dollars? And other neighbours have heard, Oh yeah, maybe I can sell mine for four point six and whatever, the boomers are the people that ultimately sold into the into the foreign investors.
0: Well, yeah, but in fairness, the buyer is bought at those prices. Indeed. So is that not but, but, what but the market would say? Yeah, that's, that's It's the an interesting true
1: value. it's an interesting conundrum. Mm. But I had a long conversation with a friend who's a realtor and, and, and it's like we, we point our fingers at property developers and sure they're part of the mix. You point your fingers at political figures and they're part of the mix. I point my fingers at the boomers that decided to sell their property for an insane amount of money. Um, cutting out any other like um, Canadians that could potentially live in those properties at an affordable price, um, just so they could take the cash and run. And then in, in turn, they then bought all the penthouses and sub penthouses in all the places in all the other buildings and drove their prices up. Mm. And it's made it very, very tough. And that's in both Vancouver and Toronto.
0: We live in a very <laughs> funny time. It is when, when boatloads of cash coming into your country yeah. is considered a problem you need to manage, but it is. Yeah, and it, uh, well, it, it's just it's
1: working uh, out a balance yeah. for communities, and yeah. you know what? Like, I came from the UK. I'm now a Canadian. I've been here for ten years. Uh, I contribute to the to society. I think everyone should. I'm all for immigration and and, and having control. Canada's only going to grow with immigration. Remember, 2063, we're going to be 65 million people, and we're not having more kids. Right? Is it, is that's how it is? Um, Canada is going to be all about immigration, but there's going to have to be a balance, um, and then you have to look up up to the uh, provincial and federal governments for that, and quite frankly, they do a pretty awful
0: job. Mm. Well, that's probably (laughs) a whole other podcast. It sure is. Uh, And I work with them, and they're they're progressive mm, thinkers. It's hard. It's a hard mm, problem to solve. mm, mm. It has been a fascinating talk. Thanks very much for coming down, Nicholas Badminton. Um, Just uh, for uh, the audience, uh, if they would like to follow up, look look at the work you're doing, uh, find out more about you. Uh, where would they look look for you? Yeah,
1: so you can go to nicholasbadminton.com. Uh, if you just put me in the internet, there's not, there's not many of me. I think there's another guy called Nick Badminton in, in South Africa, but that's it. Um, you'll find me all over the internet, all over YouTube. Uh, link with me at LinkedIn. Uh, Follow me on Twitter. I share tons of research and tons of my thinking and just articles I find interesting. I never stop learning, but I'll I'll share a couple of links with you to go in the blog and uh, it's been
0: great being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming down. Thank you. You've been listening to the Wealth Bar blog.